All right. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Good to see all of you here uh, this, this, this morning. I know some folks are, uh, came to the first service uh, for the Vikings game. But see, that's why God invented TiVo. I mean, so what's the deal here? And now a note to Dan. Dan, are you listening to me up there? Dan, hi. You know what? I'm up here and I'm, oh, never mind. There it is. I thought I was missing like two pages of notes. But they're hiding behind my other pages. So I was going to say, and this is like one of those teaching messages where I really need the notes. But don't worry, Dan. Uh, you're doing a great, didn't Dan do a great job up there? Dan, you're... Every week he's out there running that. And so I was going to ask him to make some copies, but no need here. All right, a couple of announcements. Then we'll get into our stuff. Discover Jesus class is a class taught by Paul, Eddie, and myself. Uh, it's directed towards new believers. It's a basic introduction to kingdom theology. Uh, gives a lot of the distinctive Woodland Hills theology. And our next session will be coming soon. Uh, so stop by at the Hub and get more information on how to register for that. We'll be starting on February 2nd. Also, another class that we offer here is Standing Free, uh, taught by Kevin Callaghan. And this is a class on developing a lifestyle of spiritual warfare, how to live free from oppression and uh, things of that sort. And so that'll be on Monday nights uh, starting at 6.30, and it runs from February 1st through March 22nd, but you need to register ahead of time. And uh, there's more information about that in the bulletin as well. If this is your spiritual body, uh, this is where God's called you. We encourage you to read that bulletin and get on the website and know what's going on around here and be covering all the different ministries in prayer because uh, we always are looking for more of a prayer covering. Now, before I get into the message, just a, a few preliminary words. One is that tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. And uh, we just, I always just like to take a moment and honor him. Um, not just because of the tremendous good that he did or God used him to do in America, freeing us from some of the very stubborn, entrenched, and diabolical racism that our country was founded on and it was persevering up to that time. But it's not just what he did, but how he did it that makes him really distinctive from a kingdom perspective. Because he was a man who understood that at the center of Jesus' teachings are not, is nonviolence and the need to love your enemies. And he always taught, now, and people forget this. It's, it's, like, this is the part of, of his legacy that we don't pay as much attention to. But he, he understood so profoundly that the only way to ever overcome evil, rather than just temporarily suppress it while ensuring that it goes on, that's what violence always does. But he understood the only way to overcome and conquer evil is through love, through self-sacrificial love, through Jesus-looking love. And he got that by reading the Gospels. And what was incredible is that he was able to mobilize masses of people uh, and, and making a self-sacrifice for their enemy's sake. He would tell people before marches, I don't want you demonstrating unless you can, before God, truthfully say that you're as concerned about your enemy's oppression as you are about you being oppressed. Because they're in bondage too. And, and I don't want anyone marching unless they can genuine say, genuinely say before God that they love their enemy. If, if, if that's not in your heart, if there's violence or hatred in your heart, then step aside. We don't need you because what's going to win this thing is not numbers, but the power of self-sacrificial love. And that makes him a great man. And that's why I just think it's good to honor him. Amen. And there's breakfast. Every, every, uh, every uh, Martin Luther King Day, there's breakfast held in churches around the Twin Cities and around America. And uh, I encourage you to participate in that as part of a, a bridge-building exercise and, and just and honoring this, this man. We've also, as you all know, this week been through a horrendous nightmare. Uh, what's happened in Haiti is nothing short of a nightmare. Um, a 
an earthquake of this magnitude in a populated area would be devastating in, the, in, in any city, but in Haiti, where the people are already living uh, on the edge of survival, it, it's absolutely just devastating. I, I have never in my life witnessed something that seems so, so, so just putting people in hopeless conditions, and it's been, it's been a gut-wrenching week, quite honestly. Um, and I'll be saying more about that towards the end of, of this message. Uh, we just have deep roots here at Wilton Hills Church uh, in, in Haiti. We have a number of ministries that are in Haiti, and I personally am very invested in it. Our small group helps support uh, a ministry in Haiti. I'll be saying more about that later on, but this, this hits at, at a very, very deep level. The, the pain is also what, what, what aggravates this other thing, and that is that whenever there's massive disasters like this, you always get Christian spokespeople on the airwaves saying things that are just not very helpful. Um, giving their explanation for why this happened in Haiti, which is just so unhelpful, to say the least. And then, of course, you have, as you always have when there's earthquakes, uh, preachers getting on the airwaves, whether radio or television or anything of the sort, and, and, and referring to this as, as one more piece of evidence that we're very close to Jesus returning. And we might be. I'm not denying that. I think we should live every moment of every day as though this could be our last moment. But appealing to tragedies like this as evidence of this to get people more worried about it, I don't think is the right way to go. It's part of a hysteria that, that we've really been afflicted with for about 40 years, since the late 60s. This country in particular, this end times hysteria. Uh, people are living in a lot of fear about the world coming to an end. And, and there's a lot of people capitalizing on that fear and aggravating that fear. For example, you know, how is it that this Left Behind series has been a bestseller? Uh, you know, it's, it's all about the end of the world sorts of stuff. Uh, you have in the, in, the, in, the, in the movie theaters right now, four movies that are about the end of the world. It's crazy. Uh, you've got The Road. I, I haven't seen any of these, but there's a movie called The Road, which I'm told is pretty good. It takes place at the end of the world, and as the world's coming to an end, uh, the number nine, uh, which I'm told is a pretty bad movie, 2012, uh, which is worse, and The Book of Eli, which I'm told is pretty good. These are all about the end of the world, and they're all in the theaters right now. I can also pretty much promise you that none of them are accurate, but it's good entertainment, so if you want to go, go. But it, 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 it's, it says something about our mindset, about our, our psyche. I am getting asked more and more frequently about the year 2012. What have you heard about? The end of the world coming in 2012. Have you heard about that? Uh, where you guys been? I mean, it's all over the place. That's when I got a movie, 2012. It's based on a, a prediction in the Mayan calendar. The people, the ancient Mayans in, in Mexico had a calendar, and it ended in 2012. And for some reason that I can't figure out, people are suspecting that they might be right. As if there wasn't a billion other predictions of the end of the world in different cultures. I mean, this is, this is common. But this one, for some reason, has grabbed someone's imagination and it correlates with something Nostradamus said and Edgar Cayce and who knows what. And it's Christians who are, who are freaking out about this stuff. It's a weird, weird time. And I say all that to say this. We're going to now go into a Bible study, as we always do here. Nothing fancy, just study the Bible. And the passage we're looking at in Luke... Uh, is, has been commonly interpreted as being a passage about the end of the world. In fact, it's one of the main passages that people use to uh, justify and encourage and fuel this sort of obsession that some people have with discerning the signs of the times. Reading the newspaper and kind of using the Bible as sort of a 
cryptogram horoscope code to figure out exactly how it's going to end and blah, blah, blah. And, and this passage is one of those passages. And so I'm going to give a reading that I think uh, is, is going to be quite different from that and that will probably be quite different for a lot of us. I just ask that you keep an open mind as you listen to this. So I want to entitle this message, Left My Worries Behind. If you, for you who are podcasting but can't see the overheads, it's left behind, uh, but with my worries stuck in between. I wouldn't worry about being left behind. I would want you to leave your worries behind. Clever little title, I must say. And before I read any passage, uh, I'm going I'm, I'm to be preaching out of 23 verses today. So get ready. This is content. This is teaching. I know. I've never in my life preached out of so many verses at one time. Uh, it's going to be... I encourage you to take notes because, especially for those of you who kind of live in this sort of fear or with this obsession about end time stuff, uh, this will be new and you've got to chew on it a little bit before, you know, it's hard to change uh, mind once you've believed something for a while. So I encourage you to take notes and uh, come back to this again and again as much as necessary throughout the coming weeks. But Father, as we go into your word, I pray that you'd open up our minds and hearts to receive your word augment and highlight and fuel anything that's true and anything that's not, make it disappear. And uh, cultivate our hearts to receive your word. Most of all, Lord, I pray for everyone in this auditorium or who may be listening through our podcasters, our podrishners, or those viewing television, I pray, Lord, that you'd use this message for all who need it to be freed from fear and to have that peace that passes all understanding and to have our focus on you and not to be sweating the details of the future. Free us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's kingdom people said, Amen. Amen. Here we go. Luke 21. We're reading 23 verses, starting with verse 5. And I'll make comments as I go through this. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. The temple was a magnificent edifice at this time. In fact, for 40 years it had been in the process of being refurbished and expanded. It was just opulent. And this process would in fact continue for another 30 years. Uh, It was finally completed in 64 AD. Which is kind of sad because six years later the whole thing was destroyed. Uh, The Romans uh, were squashing uh, a Jewish insurrection and they just came in and the, the temple was the pride of Israel, so they, the way you broke the back of people is you went after their symbols, and they completely destroyed the temple, destroyed all of Jerusalem, kicked the Jews out of Jerusalem. It was, it was terrible, nasty, nasty stuff. Started in 66 uh, AD and went till 70 AD. But at this point in time, it was absolutely uh, gorgeous. Uh, Luke refers to the beautiful stones of the temple, and we know from other uh, first century sources that uh, Herod, in particular, was investing a lot into this uh, refurbishing effort with the temple. And he he built it on white marble stones that were 67 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. Pure marble. Incredible. It would be very impressive. And then Luke also calls attention to the gifts in the temple. And the gifts referred to the most expensive parts of the temple, and they were donated by wealthy people. Kind of like a lot of churches do today. If you donate a you know, steeple or whatever, you get your name on it. Oh, well, they didn't put their names on it, but everyone knew who gave it. And so the temple was just laden with gold and silver and fine linen and all these things that came from wealthy people who donated it. So the, the disciples here are, are just you know, overwhelmed by the beauty and the solidity and the structure of the temple. Going on, it says, But Jesus said to them, As for what you see here, 
The time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown to the ground. Jesus is saying, don't get too impressed with this building or any building. And with regard to this particular building, which you're so overwhelmed by, looks so solid, looks so pretty, a time's going to come when it will be completely destroyed. Teacher, they asked in response, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Notice here, their question is about the destruction of the temple. And what Jesus is going to say now throughout this passage is about the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD. Uh, This is what's fueling this whole discussion. So Jesus responds by saying, Well, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, don't be frightened. Listen to that. These things must happen first. They're going to happen. So don't be frightened about it. But the end will not come right away. Jesus is saying that when, when, when things start to turn south, when things start to look bad, people grow afraid. And when they grow afraid, they're susceptible to anyone who promises security. So there'll be all these false messiahs who even in Jesus' name will lead people astray, promise them false solutions. And we know that as a matter of fact, before 70 AD, there's a number of Jewish messiah-type figures that were uh, doing this with the people. And coming up with crazy schemes, we know of one account where a guy led, thought God told him to lead 4,000 people out in the desert and they all died out there and weird stuff was going on. So Jesus is warning them uh, about these things. Out of fear, I mean, when people are afraid enough, they'll grab onto anything. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't follow these folks who are saying, the end is near, follow me. Then Jesus said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places. And fearful events and great signs from heaven will happen. But before all of this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. Then you will be delivered to synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. Notice there that Jesus says, you, he's talking to his disciples, you're going to be delivered to synagogues. Now, That would never happen to a Gentile. Gentiles are not tried in synagogues, but Jews in the first century were. And you could be put on trial and be thrown into prison or even executed. Which tells you that Jesus is talking about a a specific event that's going to be happening in the near future, and his disciples are going to be witnessing this. And so he says, you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. That's interesting. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. And in fact, this was happening prior to the destruction of the temple. When Nero blamed the fire on Rome on the Christians, everyone hated them and they were massacred left and right. Everyone will hate you because of me. But listen to this. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Do you notice what looks like a contradiction there? Okay, some of you are going to die, but not a hair in your head is going to be uh, going to perish. Like, whoa, they're going to execute us, execute us, but at least we're not going to lose our hair. <laughs> Woo! Standing on the promises of God. <laughs> Something's going on here, folks. Now, in this passage, it's, 
it's always important in the Bible when you're reading the Bible, but especially in this passage, to put it in its historical context and understand the language in its uh, historical, cultural context. This idiom, this phrase, uh, not a hair on your head will be uh, harmed or will perish, was simply a way of saying, um, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And so what Jesus is saying here is this, uh, that, yeah, they're going to turn against you and hate you and persecute you, and some of you are going to die, but you're going to be okay. And that's why he can go on to say, yeah, some of you are going to die, but if you stand firm, well, then you'll enter into life. But he said we're going to die. His response would be, I'm not talking about that kind of life. I'm talking about eternal life. You're going to be okay. And then Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. And that's exactly what happened, 70 AD. Now note, he's still talking about Jerusalem. As he is throughout this passage, he's talking about Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Then he goes on. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Look, he's still talking about this particular event. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and the wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It's going to be a time, he says, that it's just going to be nightmares, and it was. So, I mean, we have accounts of this from Josephus, and it was brutal what happened to the Jews when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was torn down and they were scattered to the other nations. It was absolutely dreadful. Jesus is saying that the Romans are going to ransack the city, the temple will be destroyed, and in some sense the Gentiles will continue to trample on it, uh, which tells you that he does see that there's a time that's going to follow this destruction of Jerusalem. This is not the end of the world. It's going to be the end of the world as, as the, the, the Jews knew it, because their whole worldview was based in Jerusalem and the temple, and their whole religion revolved around that. So it's the end of the world as they knew it, but Jesus knows there's going to be this time of the Gentiles that will follow. And it's not really clear what that time of the Gentiles refers to, but most believe, and I think this is accurate, it refers to the church age, which is a time of the ingathering of, of the Gentiles uh, in, into the household of God, which was previously re reserved just for Jewish folks. Now, there's a remnant of Jewish folks that are also still a part of that, of course, but by and large, God has turned to the Gentiles. So this is the time of the Gentiles, and um, uh, it's going to be it's follow the destruction of Jerusalem and the, the temple. And now we come to a passage, a part of this passage, that leads many to think that this is about the end of the world, not just about Jerusalem. So listen to this. Jesus says, There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive about what is coming on the world for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Even the stars in the sky are going to be shaking. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads. That's a, a, a phrase of, of encouragement. Now, everyone else is freaking out. But when everyone else is freaking out, you, my disciples, you look up into the heavens and, and, and lift up your head. Be encouraged because your, your redemption is drawing near. Now, a lot of folks understandably think that Jesus is talking about the end of the world here because they ask questions like this. Well, what were the signs in the heavens that happened when Jerusalem was destroyed? Uh, you know, the sun didn't turn dark, the moon didn't turn dark or turn to blood, or, you know, there's other verses that, that say that kind of thing. Um, and uh, the, the stars weren't shaking. 
And so it seems like this must be referring to the end of the world. And what about these earthquakes and famines and pestilence? There wasn't a, doesn't seem a global preponderance of those in, in 70 AD. And, and so they think, and when do we see the Son of Man returning in glory in 70 AD? In the clouds. Uh, and so they think it must refer to a future date. On the other hand, you've got to ask this question. Isn't it a little strange if Jesus is talking to his disciples, responding to the question about when will the temple be destroyed, over and over again talking about what, that, what that's going to look like, and all of a sudden, he jumps ahead thousands of years and is going to talk about the end of the world and not tell them that that's what he's doing. That, that, that's, that, that's a little strange. Um, if there's another way of interpreting it, that might be the better way to go. A lot of scholars... And see, this, this is the kind of thing that, that we should think about, but we should never fight over. You know, there's room for various opinions here. But a lot of scholars, and I'm, I'm really compelled by these arguments, they argue that Jesus here is using standard apocalyptic imagery to describe a future catastrophic event. Now, uh, apocalyptic imagery refers to imagery that characterized apocalyptic literature, which was a type of literature that was prevalent from about 200 B.C. to 280. We don't have it today, but in this type of literature, they used... Uh, bizarre and, and extravagant cosmic symbols to describe catastrophic events. But no one took them literally. Now, if you're not aware of that kind of literature, you might be inclined to take it liter uh, uh, literally, but it wasn't intended like that. It's like if somebody 2,000 years from now comes upon some literature of our day and that says, that day it was raining cats and dogs. They might think, gosh, back then they thought that it rained... The dogs really fall from the sky and cats really fall from the sky. But we know that we don't take that literally. It's just an expression, a way of saying, man, it's really pouring outside. Well, that, that's kind of how this apocalyptic imagery uh, worked. And it was in Jewish circles all based on biblical terminology. I mean, think about this. When you find catastrophes happening in the Old Testament, when Assyria is attacking Israel or Babylon is attacking Israel, and the prophets are talking about how catastrophic this is going to be, they use terms like Jesus used here. You find dozens of times it said the moon will turn dark or the sun will turn dark. Once it says the moon will turn to blood. But it's talking about an event that has already occurred. It's not the end of the world, but it's the end of the world as they knew it. Uh, and so this, this, this kind of terminology is found all over the place. Same thing is true about Jesus coming in the clouds. Um, you'll find, do your research on this, and you'll find in the Old Testament, Yahweh is frequently said to ride the clouds. In Psalms 18, for example, it's talking about when God parted the Red Sea, and it says that the, Yahweh descended with his feet on the clouds. Now, no one was think, thinking, like, how tall was he? Uh, or why didn't he fall through the clouds? Or, no, it's, 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 a, it's, it's an expression uh, that really denotes the clouds represent God's majesty and power, especially in contexts that have to do with judgment. So it's just a way of saying that God is going to be flexing his muscle here. Uh, God, God will be displayed in the glory of the clouds. And so for reasons such as that, I, I think the primary reference to this verse is to events that happened in 70 AD. Now some people well, might say, especially if you listen to uh, some of these end-time preachers uh, that are, are out on the airways these days or writing books, they might say, well, wait a minute. Isn't it the case that earthquakes are increasing? And isn't that a sign of the times? Because you hear that all over the place. You read Tim LaHaye's book or Jack Van Imp and others, they always are saying, There's, the earthquakes are doubling every five years or, or stuff like that. I don't know where they get that, but I did research on this because that's my job. And uh, here's what I found. I, I found an article uh, that was written by Steve Austin and Mark Strauss. 
That's confirmed by a number of other sources. But what they did is they investigated this question. They took the five major scientific catalogs of earthquakes globally, going back to 1931 when we first became capable of accurately measuring uh, and accounting for earthquakes uh, on, on a global scale. And they charted them. They compiled all this data and charted the frequency of earthquakes, 6.5 and above, from 1931 up to 1997. And this article was written in 1999. Here's what they found. Kind of hit a peak in the early 1960s. But we've been decreasing, actually. I think it goes up and down or whatever. But they haven't been increasing. Now, especially this week, on an emotional level, it feels like, like, like maybe they're increasing. And we certainly hear about them more because the world is shrinking because of technology and we're aware of what goes on. But as a matter of fact, they're, they're, they've been decreasing. And in the last uh, 12 years uh, or uh, uh, 10 years, it's, it's remained uh, just about constant. So earthquakes are not increasing. And for all these reasons, I think the primary application of this passage we're studying this morning is 70 A.D., which is why I don't believe it is uh, responsible to be using material in this passage uh, as to give people sort of the signs of, of what to look for for the coming of the end of the war, uh, world. Wars and rumors of wars. Well, you know what? There's always wars and rumors of wars. There'll be earthquakes and famines and pestilence. Well, sometimes more, sometimes less, but those are always around. But see, if you listen to some of these preachers, you're People would get filled with fear. I think it refers primarily to events that happened in 70 AD, if you understand the nature of this language. I'd argue the same thing, by the way, for the book of Revelation, though that's an entirely different sermon. At the same time, this passage, like many passages in the Bible, while it has a particular historical reference, I also think it has other ways of being fulfilled. Uh, its primary reference is to the immediate times, but, but as history unfolds, there are principles and truths in this passage that apply in different ways. True of the book of Revelation, true of this passage, and many other passages as well. And we have other reasons for believing that when, when, when the Lord really does decide to wrap up world history and come and set up his kingdom. Don't know when, don't know how, don't know what that will look like, but, but, but there will be trials and tribulation. We have other reasons for believing that. It will be describable in some of the same language that, that the Lord is using here. And so this passage is not irrelevant to us at all. In fact, it's very relevant because we'll be going through at the end of time and even before then these kind of trials that are describable in these terms. And so we have to ask the question, what is the basic message here? Which you'll miss, by the way, if you're trying to treat this passage like a horoscope to discern, you know, secret knowledge about how things are going to end up, which I believe, by the way, comes very close to practicing divination, the kind of thing that the Bible forbids, and this curiosity, oh, what's going to take place first, this, that, or Antichrist, this, that, it's, it's at best a distraction. And, and, and when we get obsessed with that way of looking at the Bible, we miss the main, we can't see the forest through the trees. Here's the forest. I think there's three basic crucial truths that come out of this passage, and they're all related to one another. First, Jesus is clearly saying that following him is going to have a price. Following Jesus has a price. Now, this was an obvious truth to everybody in the first century, to everybody in the early church. It's been an obvious truth to most Christians throughout history. It remains an obvious truth to many Christians around the world who are being imprisoned and persecuted because of their faith. But, in the last hundred or so years in Western culture, and in particular in America, we've had a distorted, I would say, heretical form of this gospel, which has reversed it. 
Following Jesus doesn't have a price. Rather, following Jesus pays a nice price. And when you follow Jesus, your life is just going to be so nice and rosy and blessed and comfortable. And Jesus will help you, you know, uh, how to win friends and influence people and get you bigger houses and nicer cars and better clothes and, and have a better sex life and whatever. It, it, Jesus is just sort of the, the great Santa Claus in the sky that's there to bless us and make our nice life even a little bit sweeter. And if that's what Jesus is supposed to do, then clearly that's what sermons should do, right? So when you go to church with this kind of theology, you want to be blessed and massaged and feel good about yourself. Not massaged literally, uh, but have your ears massaged. And, and, and you know, you, you just want to hear nice things that you already believe and have it confirmed so you know how right you are in things. You don't come to be challenged and, and have someone calling, causing distress in your brain or anything of the sort. And if that's what Jesus and sermons are supposed to do, then clearly that's what the church should do. If Jesus is the bless me, bless me Jesus, well then the church should be a bless me institution. And so churches are there as sort of a, a full service station to meet all your needs and to take care and make your life easier. And when you have that theology, you just don't have any of that kind of prophetic confrontation that's so, so crucial to the gospel. Uh, you, you don't have, you know, the gospel's supposed to unsettle us, uh, disturb us, not make us more comfortable. But all that goes by the wayside with this sort of modernized, uh, the, the, the bless me, the Jesus bless me, bless me savior of the Mick Church of America. Uh, all that prophetic stuff gets lost. Here's Jesus' great sales pitch. Hey, here's the, here's the gospel that Jesus peddles. You follow me, just in this one passage we just read now. If you follow me, it may result in you being seized, put on trial, imprisoned, betrayed, hated by everyone, and executed. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Man, that sells well. But see, that's the gospel. That's the real gospel. Not the gospel of church America, but it's the true gospel. And that's one of the points of this passage, which leads to a second uh, very important point. Jesus is saying in this passage, don't cling to anything. Don't cling to anything. Remember, that what got this whole discussion going was the disciples saying, whoa, look at this beautiful, rich temple. And Jesus says, before long it's going to fall apart. So enjoy it, but don't cling to it. Uh, buildings don't last forever. And as he goes on talking, he basically says nothing lasts forever. Uh, everything you know will be ruined along with this temple. The world as you know it will be ruined. Uh, for some of you, the family and friends you thought were so secure are going to turn against you. That will be ruined. And all, your relationship to all of society may, in fact, be ruined. You'll lose everything. They may all turn against you, and you may be executed. And the point is, he's saying, don't cling to any of that. Don't, cling, don't get security from any of that. Don't have a sense of well-being that's rooted in any of that. You can enjoy it when you have it. Just enjoy it with open palms. Enjoy the temple. It's a really cool building, but before long, it will be ruined. Even the best of buildings, the biggest of buildings, the sturdiest of buildings sometimes fall to the ground, World Trade Center, for example. So enjoy it, but don't find a lot of security in it. And, and, and family and friends and relatives, enjoy them, but especially if you're in a context where they're your kingdom and they're not, it, it can leave you, it can turn against you, so enjoy it, but don't get any security from that. Don't get any life from that. Don't find your sense of well-being in that. Enjoy the solid ground beneath you, but there may come a time where that solid ground isn't so solid anymore. So enjoy it, but don't cling to that. And enjoy the food that you have, but food sometimes grows scarce, and so don't cling to food. In fact, your life, enjoy your life. Live it passionately, moment by moment, as though each moment were the last moment, but don't cling to it as a source of life. Like you've really got to have it, because in a drop of a dime, in a second, it can be gone. 
Don't cling to anything. Rather, cling to the Lord Jesus Christ as your all and your everything. Cling to the Lord Jesus Christ as the source of your well-being. Cling to the Lord Jesus Christ as your source of security. Cling to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, for all the core needs of your life because Jesus is a rock that cannot be moved, praise God. He, he's a ground that cannot be shaken. He is the temple of God that can never be destroyed. Put all your eggs in that basket and cling to nothing else. And the evidence that you're doing that is that if you're in a situation that calls for you to let go of everything else to cling to him, you're willing to do it. In fact, if you're in a situation where clinging to him makes you lose everything else, you're willing to do that. And the real evidence that you're clinging to Jesus as your source of life and nothing else is that not only are you willing to let it go, but, and this leads to my third point, you don't worry about it. The core, core message of, of, of this passage if we read it in, in its historical context instead of in a horoscope kind of a way, a core point of this passage is don't worry. In fact, be encouraged. Don't worry about this. Now, Jesus, I want to be clear. Jesus is not saying don't have any feelings about it, like you're a stoic that's just above all the mayhem of the world. He's not saying that. In fact, you can, you can hear the pain in his voice when he says how, how terrible, how desperate for those women who are nursing babies or who are pregnant when this happens. Uh, how, how terrible it will be for them. And this is the same Jesus, remember, who, who just in the previous chapter, which for us was about six months ago, but, but in the previous chapter when he was riding into Jerusalem and he, he talks about this coming destruction. He, it, the Bible says he wailed. He was crying. He says, how often I wanted to gather you and protect you, but you keep pushing God away and now this is what's going to happen. As a kind of a natural consequence of rejecting God, this is going to happen, but his heart is breaking for them. And so also we who are his followers must have the capacity and the willingness to let the pain of the world on the inside and wail with those who wail and weep with those who weep. Uh, we, as we follow Jesus, must be willing to let Haiti on the inside. And you, can't, you shouldn't become obsessed with it to the point where you're watching uh, you know, CNN 24-7 and you're doing nothing but crying. Uh, that, that's not helpful either. But to let, to let that pain in a little bit and, and to, as the Bible says, weep with those who weep, even as we rejoice with those who rejoice. What, we, what the Lord does not want us to do is to plug our ears in our nice little oasis of wealth and go la, 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 and, and go on with our nice comfortable lives and not pay, not, not pay attention to the massive nightmarish pain that is going on in Haiti. Uh, we have to let the pain of the world on the inside, even as Jesus did. But Jesus is saying, for, as for your own welfare, as for your own welfare, don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah, you know, it's going to be nasty. Don't worry. The temple's going to fall to the ground. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Uh, Romans are going to massacre a bunch of people. You're going to be persecuted and hated. You're going to be delivered up into synagogues and put on trial. It's going to be really, really nasty. Don't worry. Don't worry, because not a hair on your head will be harmed. Uh, you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. Yeah, you'll die, but, but you're going to be all right. Because, see, they can hurt you, but they can't really get to you. They can take away your life and take away all your possessions and take away everything that you, you know, thought was reliable, and, and they can do a lot of nasty stuff. But, see, you are a child of God. You are eternal. You have an eternal relationship with God, and they can't touch that. As if all your eggs are in that basket, well, then you'll, you, when life, you know, when you got to let life go, you let it go. And, you know, so it is with everything that we think we own. You let it go, but you don't worry about that 
Because your peace isn't rooted in maintaining those things. Your peace is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And your joy and sense of well-being isn't rooted in those things. Your joy and sense of well-being is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they can't take that away from you. Trials and persecutions, they're not pleasant at all, but don't worry about that. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, such a wonderful passage. He says, I'm just persuaded that neither height nor depth, nor principality nor power, nor things present nor things to come, neither famine nor pearl nor sword, nothing can take us away from the love of God. The devil himself can't take us away from the love of God, can't separate us from the love of God. As we sang a little bit earlier, what can separate us from you? And the answer is nothing. And if that is the source of our security, then, then we live with a sense of peace we otherwise could not possibly have. Our peace is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's just astounding here that Jesus, you know, he's saying all this stuff, but notice this. He doesn't tell his disciples to do anything about it. He describes what others are going to do, but he doesn't tell them, give them instructions. He doesn't like go, okay, you guys, here's the deal. Uh, I have a snapshot of how this is going to go down, and so here's my plan, my three-step plan on how you can avoid all trials and tribulations. <laughs> doesn't do that. Hey, you guys, you know, here's my rapture-ready kit. <laughs> Be, 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 be prepared for this. He doesn't do that. He says these things must happen. This is how it's going to go down. It's sad, but this is how, so this is how it's going to go down. In fact, he tells them to do the opposite. Uh, rather than prepare, he says, make sure that you don't prepare. You put, make up your mind ahead of time, not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. This is how carefree you should be. Trust God and just, when you need to say stuff, God will tell you what to say. This completely contradicts a massive amount of thinking today. The way people think about things. The way Christians in particular tend to think about things. Especially here in America. Ten years ago, remember Y2K? People were freaking out. I was a little worried too. But, but people were not only, you know, stockpiling food and stuff. There was Christians who were stockpiling ammunition and guns. Why? Well, because... When food gets scarce, the, 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 the masses will turn into riots. There'll be riots and they'll be trying to get ours. And so we have to prepare and defend ourselves. There are, I'm told, Christians today who, given their sort of eschatological chart, which just means a chart of the end time, about what's going to happen when and blah, 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 they, they think that they're going to go through the tribulation period, as though tribulation periods weren't always happening, but there's going to be a special tribulation period. And so they are preparing for it by, by you know, some of them are having underground shelters and, 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 and fuel and food and, and ammunition and guns because it's going to be mayhem then when the Antichrist, you know, appears and we've got to be able to defend for ourselves. Which is exactly what Jesus says. Don't you find that all over the place Jesus is always saying, make sure you defend yourself and arm yourself and have guns ready. No! This idea of self-defense, okay, it's so Americanized. It is, it's all over the place. Look at, I, I don't listen to AM Christian radio very much. It's just not good for my soul. Now, if it blesses you, wonderful. I, that's fine. I bless you. I just find it doesn't uh, do me much good. It pushes my cynicism button all over the place. But I feel a responsibility to listen to it a little bit just so, because as a leader, I want to know what's going on. What are they saying out there? So, Last week, I turned it on. And I usually listen to it for as long as I can. In this case, it lasted three minutes. I'm, honestly, I'm not exactly. I listened three minutes. But in that three minutes, here's what I found. See, the message today is be afraid, be afraid, be very, very afraid. And whoever can make you afraid controls you. Because now you're in that position that Jesus talked about where you're saying, well, then what's the solution? What do I do? Where's my security? And we follow all these false teachings. Teachings like, 
in Jesus' name, store up ammunition so you can kill the people who want you to share your food. That is not Jesus' gospel. So I turn on this radio station, AM, and here's what I heard right off the bat. Uh, Christians, they're taking away our rights, they being the government. They're taking away our right to free speech. They're taking away our right to carry guns. We should really worry about that one. And They're taking away our freedoms. Our freedoms are being robbed. They're imposing socialism on us. Uh, They're going to have death panels, and they'll decide uh, which of your parents will uh, live or die and and whatever. And then when you get to be that age, they're going to decide whether you can live or not. The homosexual agenda is destroying our marriages left and right. The government is taking over. It's time, this guy said, that Christians develop an attitude. And he wasn't talking about an attitude of blessings. He says, we need to get an attitude. We need to get mad. We need to defend for our, our rights now while we still can fend for our rights. We need to take a stand. All the while, pressing the fear button. Fear. Be afraid. Be afraid. Be very, very afraid. They're taking over. The Antichrist is coming. Blah, 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 blah. And see whoever makes you afraid? Well, now they... Actually, installing hatred. See, this is a false gospel. We ought to be hating him because he's going to be taking away our rights or hating them or, or whoever the enemy is. Jesus says, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. If someone wants a coat, you give them your shirt also. Remember the teachings of Jesus. Most importantly, and this is the prerequisite for remembering the teachings of Jesus, don't be afraid. The message here that Jesus is giving is basically this. Follow me. Die to yourself. And all that self-protective stuff, die to that. And when you die to that, you will die to all fear. So don't worry about it. God runs the world. Trust him. Don't worry about it. You're going to live forever. So, yeah, you'll die Uh, But don't worry about it. Not a hair on your head will be harmed. The end will come. But don't worry about it. He he says this all over the place. Don't worry about tomorrow, he says in Matthew 6. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Live each one day at a time. Don't go chasing after security and food and all the other stuff that the pagans do. They got no other life. So of course they're going to do that. But kingdom people, trust in God, the sovereign Lord of history. Jesus Christ is Lord. You belong to him. You don't need to worry. Perfect love casts out all fear. Isaiah could say this even in the Old Testament when Assyria was getting ready to attack Israel and and he himself had prophesied about all this destruction that they were going to do. It was nightmarish. But Isaiah says, the nations and the militaries are a drop in the bucket to our Lord. Isaiah 40, verses 15 through 17. They don't even measure on the scales. You know, God is way, way bigger. He's Lord. He's in control. Trust in him. And then he says in chapter 26, the Lord will give perfect peace to those whose eyes are stayed on him. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the one who was resurrected from the dead, the one who reigns as Lord. Fix your eyes on him. Make him the source of all your security, all, all your well-being. And nasty stuff will happen, but worst case scenario is you die and you go into the presence of the one who's loved you forever and ever and ever. And that's not something you should be worried about. Rather, Jesus says, precisely when things are getting nasty and everyone else is freaking out, you be encouraged and lift your head up and look up. Because your redemption is drawing close. Have no fear. We have the ability to live through the power of the Holy Spirit in a peace that passes understanding. It does sometimes look like the world is falling apart, spiraling downward. Got that? So? 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 Jesus is still Lord. He still reigns. Have peace. Have peace. I'm going to pray to seal this message in our hearts. Um, And I want to invite any who um, who, who want prayer Maybe it's for anxiety about the future or maybe something else. We'll have prayer teams up here. Uh, But before I pray, I want to say this. Um, We're going to take up an offering. 
uh, for the Haitian relief. As you leave here, there'll be folks that have buckets available, and I want to encourage you to, if you haven't already in some other organization, uh, to give to uh, Haitian Relief. Um, we have two ministries here at Woodland Hills Church, Providence Ministry and, and CoFed. Uh, and uh, they're deeply rooted in Haiti. They know Haiti. They understand Haiti. And what we'll be doing is uh, collecting these funds and giving it to those two ministries uh, because they're on the ground. We have right now a, uh, I just was told before the service, uh, a doctor sent out through Providence Ministry that's now circling Haiti, uh, uh, and looking for a time to, to land, and she'll be there for six weeks or so uh, doing medical help and, and things of that sort. Uh, and we're hoping, if things work out right, to be sending a few others down to Haiti in, in the weeks to come. But here's the thing. It's, however God leads you to give, you give. And thank God for every organization that's funneling uh, medical supplies and emergency needs to the people of Haiti. They need it. But there's something beautiful when the body of Christ does this. Because we do it in Jesus' name. And, and when we empower people in our own body, in their own ministries here, what they do is part of what we do. So we together want to funnel our resources uh, to minister to these people. And the good thing is that, I mean, one of the many good things is that you know, because we have relationships here, we, you know that every penny you give is getting there. Uh, it, it's, there's no overhead here. There's no administration cost. It's going directly. And so it's something you can trust. And so uh, I if you haven't given yet, I know a lot of you already have, I encourage you to do so. Or you can also get on our church website and for a week or so we'll have this Haitian relief fund that you can donate to there. And then we'll take this money and give it to these two ministries and they'll be using it to provide relief. If you write out checks, make it out to Woodland Hills Church and put in the memo Haitian relief and we'll make sure that it, it, it uh, gets to them. The only other thing I'll say is that this is a Bible study time seminar. This isn't church. Church happens when we leave here. And so we have assignments. And I want to encourage you to pick up assignments at the Hub, um, especially for those for whom this was a new way of looking at this passage. And, and, and I, I, I want to encourage you to keep chewing on this. And that's, these assignments will help you continue to process this message uh, in the weeks to come. So Father, in Jesus' name, we pray, Lord, that you would root out all fear. Fear is not of you. This obsession with the future is not of you. Make us your carefree people who dance in your love moment by moment, and enjoy life while it's here and live it passionately while it's here, but are okay letting it go. And even letting go of the world, we entrust you with the world. Purge us from all fear so we're not victims to false teachers who try to rally up our fear and make us hate people and defend ourselves and all other kinds of things. Let the peace that passes understanding be with us. And then, Lord God, direct us as how you would want us to give uh, to this Haitian relief. We pray for that whole nation which has been so ravished in so many different ways. We just pray that you, Lord God, be using people, raising up people to meet the needs or begin to meet the needs uh, that, are, that are there. They are our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said one last time. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.